Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Here's Pastor Willie Taylor. ...some ways we don't even recognize today, including the way we speak. Do you know that we have 257 idioms, that is, phrases that we use in English language that come directly out of the Bible? Phrases that we use all the time today that we don't even think about being from the Bible. Look at these Bible phrases and direct quotes out of the Bible. By the skin of your teeth, handwriting on the wall, from the cradle to the grave, a leopard can't change his spots, there's nothing new under the sun, signs of the time, a thorn in the flesh, a fly in the ointment. 257 phrases like that are direct verses out of the Bible. Now, next time you go to Walmart and you hear somebody use one of these phrases, you need to stop them and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? And they won't have a clue, but the problem is they're going to say, no, I don't. What Bible verse was that? So if you ask somebody, you need to know. But see, the problem is we don't even recognize a lot of this anymore. Same when you get into areas of literature and fine arts. I think we all know who Shakespeare is 400 years ago. He did all these comedies and plays and tragedies. And even now, 400 years later, Hollywood is still cranking out movies that are nothing but remakes of Shakespeare plays. We have Broadway plays that are done Shakespeare. We have high school groups that do Shakespeare do you know in Shakespeare's plays and his tragedies, his dialogue has 2,000 Bible verses in his dialogue. I'll guarantee a lot of folks on Broadway who do Shakespeare every night have no clue that they're reciting so much of the Bible every night as they speak, but they are. It's just that we're not aware of the way the Bible has shaped us in a lot of ways. I love the way that President John Quincy Adams said this. President Adams said this. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible... It's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Now, that's a real reversal. See, today, if somebody knows the Bible, we go, oh, that's, we praise them. We say, that's really good. Back then, if someone didn't know the Bible, they would go, shame on you. You don't know the Bible. How can you be an educated, how can you be a literate person and not know the Bible? See, it's such a re- reversal of the way that we look at things today. It was very shameful not to know it, but it's very praiseworthy today. We need to go back the other way, where that everybody knows the Bible. Matter of fact, let me show you some, some instance out of history that we don't think about that are maybe associated with the Bible. Uh, you're all aware of Patrick Henry and Patrick Henry, that famous speech he gave, give me liberty, give me death. He gave March the 23rd, 1775. Let me just read you the last part of his speech. That's the part that often gets quoted in textbooks. Here's what the speech says. He's talking to this group, and this is St. John's Church in Richmond, and he's talking to the legislative assembly. He says, Sir, we're not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature has placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which the enemy can send against us. He said, Besides, sir, we should not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It's to the vigilant, the active, the brave. He says the war has already begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Now, that's the famous speech that we hear. And what I just read to you is the last part of the speech. That's 14 sentences. Here's the question I've got. Those 14 sentences I just read, how many Bible verses did Patrick Henry quote? Any idea? He quoted 11 Bible verses in what he just read. 
Now, most of us saw that, and we didn't recognize these 11 verses. Direct quotes out of 11 different verses that he used in giving that speech. But that's how much the Bible inculcated the way they talked, the way they thought, what they did, even in ways that we don't recognize today. Same way, take Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, a very notable founding father, one of only six who signed the Declaration and the Constitution. But I want to show you something that happened at the Constitutional Convention. This happened in 1787. At that point at the Constitutional Convention, we have the 13 states that have come together. They're trying to figure out how to have a federal government. The problem is they all come, everybody's got their own plan. You had the New York plan, you had the New Jersey plan, the Connecticut plan, the Virginia plan, and obviously the other states didn't want the plan of, the, of some particular state, and so it was falling apart. So on Thursday, June the 28th, 1787, Benjamin Franklin gave a speech at the Constitutional Convention, his longest speech. The convention's falling apart. Alexander Hamilton, they're heading back home to New York. He's tired of fighting with the other delegates. Uh, George Mason of Virginia, he's out of there because he's tired of fighting with the other delegates. And at this point, Franklin is 81 years old. He is by far the elder statesman of that group. And he gives this speech kind of trying to hold them together. And this is what he tells them. He's talking to George Washington, President Convention, addressing the president. He says, in this situation of this assembly, sir, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Now, 11 years earlier, this is the room in which they met and signed the Declaration of Independence. At that time, the Continental Congress, one Congress, had two chaplains. They prayed every day. They had serious prayer every day. I'll show you later how serious they were in their prayers. But he said, hey, we used to pray all the time in this room, and God answered our prayers. As he said, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. He continues. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future generations. He closed. He said, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, that little speech by Franklin, this is just the last part of what he was telling the other delegates. It, again, is 14 sentences long. Same question. How many Bible verses did Franklin just quote in those 14 sentences? And the answer is 13. He had direct quotations out of 13 different Bible verses in what he just did. But, again, we're not used to seeing the Bible in that format. I'll give you one other example. I want to take you to George Washington in 1790 because now he's president of the United States. And, by the way, George Washington says that after Franklin's call to prayer at the convention, they recessed for three days. They went to church. They specifically went to the church of Reverend William Rogers who had a special time of prayer 
prayer over the convention, prayed that they would get their heads together and come together in unity and produce something fruitful for the nation, and they did. So he's now the president, and he's on a tour of the 13 states. And as he's going from state to state, in 1790, he's going into Rhode Island. And as he's going into Rhode Island, the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, writes him a letter in anticipation of his visit. And it's a letter of praise. They said, man, we thank God's raised you up for such a time as this. You have protected our civil liberties. You've protected our religious liberties. You're a man of God for the hour. And so he writes them back a very kind letter responding to their kind letter to him. And this is part of what George Washington said to the Hebrew congregation in Newport. He said, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree and there shall be none to make him afraid. He said, May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our own several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. That is two sentences out of the letter. In those two sentences out of the letter, how many Bible verses did he quote? Answer is ten. He quoted ten. That letter was nothing more than one Bible phrase after another that he had put together. You see, that kind of, of understanding incorporation of the Bible and their thinking in life is exactly why when you look at the Constitution today, if you know the Bible, you find Bible quotes all over the Constitution, all through it. Now, people, oh, no, it's a godless document. It's a secular separation of church and state. Sorry. If you know the Bible, you see the Bible all over the Constitution because there's exact direct wording that they use, phrase after phrase. See, and that's what has produced so much of the nation. Now, we don't recognize that anymore, but it's good to go back and remember this. And as a matter of fact, we used to know this in previous generations. I love the way that President Andrew Jackson said this. He says, the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. We knew that. We knew where the ideas came from. We knew why we are a unique nation. Now, here we are today, and we do enjoy a lot of blessings in this country. Uh, the, the form of government we have, our declaration, our constitution, we've been under that longer than any other nation has been under their form of government. As a matter of fact, there's 192 nations in the world today. And you look at those 192 nations, and that number goes up and down every year. It depends on who's had a revolution. Sudan just, just split. So now there's Sudan and South Sudan, which is the Christian part. You've got 192 nations we're the only one that's been under the same piece of paper for 235 years. I mean, even if you take Europe, and Europe is considered the second most stable part of the world, that's the old world. And you look at how stable the old world is. In the period of time that America has had our Constitution, France has gone through 15 constitutions in that same period of time. How would you like to live in a country where you've had 15 constitutions while well, we've just had one? Or you jump over here to Poland. Poland's had seven constitutions since, since 1919. You can be alive in Poland today and live through seven revolutions in your life. Or go over here to Russia. Russia's had four constitutions since 1917. Go further right off to Afghanistan. Afghanistan's had five constitutions since 1923. Everybody else in the world seems to live through a revolution every 20 to 30 years. We've had one revolution in our history. That was 235 years. We're more stable than any nation out there. Sometimes we forget that as we look at the problems we've got today. You know what? We're also more prosperous than any other people. You look at who we are as a people. America is a small country. We have 4% of the world's population. That's just not that much. But that 4% produces 31% of the world's gross domestic product. 31% of the world's wealth. We don't produce more wealth because we actually have more natural resources because we don't. South America's got more natural resources than we do. Africa's got more natural resources. We just seem to be able to take what we have and make it go further than anybody else. We're a blessed people. This is why we have the phrase attached called American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is a 
phrase that was given to America back in 1831. It's a foreign observer, elected to Oakville. He came here, he toured America. He said, this is unbelievable. I've never seen this stuff before. He said, this is exceptional. He said, I don't think any other nation will ever get to what America's done. That's where we get the term American exceptionalism. Now, if we cover this in textbooks today, we say, well, now, students, who's responsible? Who are the leaders responsible for what we enjoy today? And invariably, we'll say, well, the people behind all the stuff that we enjoy, you, you got George Washington, of course, you got Thomas Jefferson, and, and, and with addition, Thomas Jefferson, you got uh, John Hancock, and, and don't forget John Adams. And so we go through all these names, and that's great. No problem with that because they are very significant guys who made a lot of contributions. But interestingly, 200 years ago, when they were asked who's behind American independence, they gave a whole different set of names than what we talk about today. For example, 1816, John Adams is an old man. It's 40 years after the American Revolution. We have a whole new generation of Americans who've come along. They're loving what they've got. They go, where did all this come from? So 1816, 40 years later, he said, where did all this come from? You want to know where it came from? He said, well, if you want to know who's responsible for this, he said, right up top, you have to have the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And, of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. And don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. Oh, and there's the Reverend Charles Chaunt. And he goes through and starts listening to all these preachers. Now, today, we might know something about Whitfield, but the chances that we know anything about Cooper or Mayhew or Chaunt, slim to none. We don't study them today. But he said, these are the guys responsible. See, we don't study these guys. Uh, and, and like, who in the world is Richard Allen? Or, or who's Absalom Jones? Uh, who's John Morant? Uh, who is Lemuel Haynes? All these preachers, black and white, that had a huge impact in the American founding. We don't study them today. Although they were called back then as very significant. Let me just give you one example. Take this preacher. This is Harry Hoosier. Harry Hoosier was a preacher in the First Great Awakening. He was there with George Whitfield, remember the Wesleys, uh, Bishop Francis Asbury, Richard Cook, all these famous guys in that 40-year revival we call the First Great Awakening. He actually drew larger crowds than, than famous folks like Francis Asbury. We hear nothing about him today. And by the way, signer of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush, went and heard him preach. He said, he is the greatest orator I've ever heard in my life. Well, you've heard Patrick Henry, and you've heard Thomas Jefferson. You've heard, no, he's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Now, and by the way, see that name, Harry Hoosier? Does the name Hoosier sound familiar to anybody? Anybody recognize the name Hoosier from anywhere? I wonder how many people in Indiana know they've been named after a black evangelist. Probably very few. How'd they get that name? Real simple. You see, he preached all over the wild frontier area. The wild frontier back then was Indiana and Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee. And he's preaching all. And as he preaches to all these wild crowds out there, they come to Christ. Their life gets changed. Their behavior gets changed. They, they get really converted. And, and people look at him and say, oh, look at him. He's one of those Hoosier guys. His life's been changed by the preaching of Harry Hoosier. That's how they got the name, Hoosiers. Because all these people whose lives had been touched by his preaching. We don't hear these kind of things today. Now, going back to John Adams, why in the world would he point to a bunch of preachers and say, these are the guys responsible for what we enjoy today? It's real simple. When you look at the Declaration of Independence, it gives 27 reasons that we separated from Great Britain. As you read the reasons, it sets forth all these rights that have been violated. And historians have pointed out that every single right that set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. You know what that means? That means the Declaration of Independence is nothing more than a list of the sermons we've been hearing in church for the last 20 years leading up to the Revolution. See, that's what the founders knew, and that's why they could point to these preachers and say, these are the guys responsible. Now, the 56 individuals who put this document together, the, the signers of the Declaration, if you look in the records of Congress, the first time that they ever got together is recorded in the records of Congress. 
It's September the 7th, 1774. And you read the records of Congress. And if you'll read the first time that all the founding fathers, first time we had a Congress, first time we got together, you'll read and you'll say, oh, look, they opened with prayer. And you'll keep reading and you'll say, wow, that wasn't a dinky little prayer, was it? No, it wasn't. According to historical records, the opening prayer session in Congress ran for right at two hours. That's an interesting way to start anything. You know, the church would be fun if we started two hours of prayer. We don't do that. But Congress started with two hours of prayer. And they didn't just start with prayer. John Adams over here said more. He, he wrote his wife, Abigail, and said, Abigail, not only do we have prayer, we studied four chapters of the Bible that morning in Congress. He said, God so spoke to us out of Psalm 35, just changed our whole attitude. Built our, Psalm 35? Yeah, this is what he told Abigail. He said, Abigail, he said, I must beg you to read that Psalm. Read the 35th Psalm to your friends. Read it to your father. Abigail, we had prayer this morning, then we studied four chapters of the Bible, and man, you ought to see what God showed us in Psalm 35, and I want you to read it, then I want you to show it to your friends, I want you to show it to your father. Her father was the pastor of their church, Reverend William Smith. He wanted everybody to know what God had shown them out of Psalm 35, and we didn't even know they had a prayer meeting, much less a Bible study, much less God spoke to them out of the Bible study, but it didn't stop there. He said, Abigail... He said, in addition, he said, we have appointed a continental fast. He said, millions will be upon their knees at once before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessings, his smiles on American council and arms. He said, can you imagine the impact of having three million Americans pray and fast? That's how many we had in America back then, three million. Now, it's interesting. We had this day of, of prayer and fasting. That was the first of 15 times that the National Congress called the people, called we the people to prayer. Fifteen times they did this national prayer. These guys were so into prayer that by the time you get to 1815, there have been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer by 1815. 1,400 times governments called us to prayer by 1815. Now, all this prayer we did, this, this, this prayer that John Adams talked about that I'm pointing to right now was the first, and it was a day of fasting and prayer, and that was significant. Well, we fasted and we prayed, and the, the proclamation by Congress has all these prayer requests in it to pray and fast. And, and so after we'd done that, just six, eight weeks later, John writes Abigail again. He says, Abigail, he said, you're not going to believe what's happened. Remember we had that day of prayer and fasting several weeks ago? He said, you're not going to believe what's been happening. So he goes through and starts telling all these accounts of what's been happening. And it's pretty fascinating accounts because you have to remember, at that time, we did not have a military. We are British citizens, have been our whole lives. The British military is our military. What we're trying to do is build a military, but what that means is you've got to get all the farmers and all the school teachers and all the shopkeepers. They've got to go home and grab the squirrel gun off the top of the mantle in the fireplace and go out and take on the world's greatest military. I mean, this is unthinkable that we're taking citizens who don't have any military experience and taking on the world's greatest military. But he goes through all these, these battles that we're winning. We shouldn't be winning. And then he talks about how that we captured a 64-gun British man-of-war and a 20-gun British man-of-war. And what really made that remarkable was we didn't even have a Navy back then. Without a Navy, we are already capturing the British Navy. So he's looking at all this, and he said, this is unbelievable. So he and several guys were at a, at a restaurant, and they were talking about all this stuff that was happening. And what conclusion can you come to? I mean, you're seeing all this incredible stuff. Well, he told Abigail, he says, Abigail, looking at all this that's happened, he says, it appears to me that the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. Yeah, real simple. 
Only way you can explain this is God showed up because it doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't make sense in the natural. But we had that day of prayer and fasting, and it sure looks like God showed up because he's operating powerfully against the British. See, that was the spiritual aspect that they saw that we never hear anymore. And I can show you document after document throughout the American Revolution just like this. But let me take you to the end of the Revolution. 1781, the final battle at Yorktown. We whipped the British. The British lay down their arms. As a result of the British doing that, for the first time in our history, we're now out from under British law. It doesn't matter what the kings say anymore because we're now an independent nation. And the reason that's significant is about 150 years earlier, the British had imposed a policy on America that says if you live in America, English-speaking colony, you can print no Bible in the English language. You can't print a Bible over there. See, we had an established church, and whatever the king was, that's what we're going to be. If he's Catholic, we'll be Catholic. If he's Anglican, we'll be Anglican. Whatever he is, that's what we are. We don't get our choice in this. But now, as a result of Yorktown, we're not under that policy anymore. So within months of Yorktown, the plan is made to print the first English-language Bible in America. Eleven months later, that Bible rolled off the presses. It's called the Bible of the American Revolution. It's one of the rarest books in the world. Now, we're very blessed at Wall Builders. We own about 100,000 documents from before 1812. So I have thousands of the handwritten documents uh, of George Washington and Jefferson and all these guys. This is one of the documents we own. You see, back then they printed 10,000 copies of this Bible. Today there's only about eight copies left in private hand. We have one, Library of Congress has one, etc. One of the rarest books in the world, this Bible, first Bible printed in English in America. You know who's responsible for this Bible? The Congress of the United States. Is it, really? Why would, Congre- why would the founding fathers in Congress do a Bible? Now... Why would the founding fathers, why do they think it's important we have a Bible? First Bible printed in English in America, responsible, Congress responsible for it. Why did they do it? This is what it says. This is the actual quote from the records of Congress. Founders said, real simple, this is what it is. It's a neat addition to the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools. Really? I thought... I thought, the, I thought that's why we didn't have the Bible in schools, because the founding fathers didn't... No, June the 25th, or June the 17th, 1963, the first time in American history the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you can't do the Bible. We've done the Bible in schools for centuries, but you can't do it anymore in schools now. We think the way that it's been since 1963 is the way American history has always been, not by a long shot. The memorial in Congress, the actual, matter of fact, here's a handwritten document. This is a neat addition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools. And this Bible even has a congressional endorsement in the front of it. It says, Resolve the United States and Congress assembled. Recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. Really? Founding fathers? See, we didn't get this one when we went through school. We didn't hear this aspect of why they did or what they did or this first Bible in English. And by the way, the very next year is when John Jay, John Adams, and Ben Franklin signed the peace treaty that secured American independence. If you ever want to see that treaty, and this is the actual treaty, you can go to the State Department, Washington, D.C. You go up on the sixth floor of the State Department to the John Quincy Adams State Drawing Room. You can see the document that secured our independence. Signed at the bottom, David Hartley, the British ambassador. Then you have John Adams, Ben Franklin, John Jay. Notice there's ten articles in this treaty that secured our independence. Look at the title that begins the treaty. The biggest letters on this thing right there. In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Now... I could be wrong, but that sounds Christian to me. I just... Oh, no, no, no. The, the, the founding fathers wouldn't want under God in the pledge. Why, the founding fathers would be opposed to when God would trust in our money. Separation churches. Really? 
The document that secures our independence, they start with a Trinitarian invocation, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. You see, John Adams signed this. John Adams signed the, doc, the declaration. John Adams is there from start to finish, and John Adams said it as simply as possible. He said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, you can't say it any simpler than he said it, but today we're determined to say exactly the opposite. I love collecting articles like this. For example, the, the L.A. Times, America's unchristian beginnings. See a little tag over here? It says the founding fathers were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. A whole chain of newspapers out on the East Coast ran this one. The authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. And then, of course, you've got to let our professors weigh in. Professors, they love to weigh in on this. It says the founding fathers were not Christians. Emphasize not. I don't care what John Adams said. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about because I'm a Ph.D. And I'm telling you, they weren't Christians. How arrogant is this? We have their actual documents. We have their handwritten stuff. We know what they said. No, no, no. I'm a professor. And I'm telling you, they weren't Christians. And by the way, young people, the most serious attack you will face in your entire life will be when you get to university. Right now, between 81 and 88% of our young people deny their Christian faith while they're at university. That's the most hostile place for Christians in America right now is academic. These professors, these, these guys who know so much because they're so educated, forget what the actual documents. No, no, I'm a Ph.D. and I'm telling it's a, it's a seriously dangerous place right now for our young people is universities. Now, having said that, you know, this kind of stuff a lot of people accept today. I speak at universities and law schools all over the nation. I was recently at one of the most prestigious law schools in America. Some of the sharpest kids in America there. I put up this slide right here, and I said, here's the sign of the Declaration of Independence. I want you guys to tell me who you recognize up there. They said, well, uh, there's Thomas Jefferson. Uh, there's Ben Franklin. I didn't get anything else. But wait a minute. There's 56 guys up here. You gave me two. Give me somebody else. Don't know anybody else. I said, okay, let me help you. I want to take you across the front row here. I'm going to give you some, some hints. I want to show you the guys on the front row. Uh, right here on this side, this is Richard Henry Lee. He's the guy who made the motion in Congress. He's separate from Great Britain. Uh, beside him, you have George Clinton. He's a military general. Beside him, you have Sam Adams. He's the father of the American Revolution. Looking backwards, the opposite direction, this is Charles Carroll from Maryland. Uh, right here on the front row... Uh, with the light brown jacket, that's Robert Morris. He's the financier of the revolution who kept us in the field. Beside him, you have Dr. Benjamin Rush, the first surgeon general of the American military. Uh, beside him, leaning on his elbows, Elbridge Jerry, who went on to be one of the guys who wrote the Constitution. He's the governor of Massachusetts. Uh, beside him, you have Robert Treat Payne, the first attorney general of Massachusetts. And I just went through all these, and they go, who? Never heard those names before. Isn't it interesting that we today have all been trained to recognize our two least religious founding fathers? You see, we can find Jefferson and we can find Franklin, and that's usually exactly where it stops. It doesn't matter what the others believe. They're all like Jefferson and Franklin. Are they really? Our two least religious founding They're all like that? Do you know out of the 56 guys who signed the Declaration of Independence, 29 of these guys held seminary and Bible school degrees? It's not bad for a bunch of atheists to have Bible school degrees. Apparently that's what they did back then is they sent atheists to Bible Half of these guys are trained. See, we don't know who they are today. For example, the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon's the best-known gospel evangelist in his generation. If I can use the term, he is the Billy Graham of his day. Has more than a dozen published volumes of gospel sermons back in the day. He's also a long-term member of Congress. He served on 100 committees in Congress. He was George Washington's boss. He's on the Board of War. He's the president of Princeton. And he's also responsible for two famous American editions of the Bible, including this one right here. This is original from 1791. That is America's very first family Bible. 
This signer of the Declaration, this founding father, gave us this Bible so that families could have Bible studies together. He's responsible for two famous American Bibles, but we don't even know who John Witherspoon is today. But he does have a ton of political writings. I mean, a guy who serves in Congress as long as he did, served on 100 committees, got a ton of writings. You read his writings, you find statements like this. He says, I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other. Acts 4.12. He says, if you're not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you're not clothed with a spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. I could be wrong, but that sounds evangelical to me. I'm not used to atheists talking like this, and he's one of our great atheist founding fathers. See, but we don't know who John Witherspoon is. We have the same trouble with Dr. Benjamin Rush. Dr. Benjamin Rush right here, when he died in 1813, you had John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said he's one of the three most notable founders. They said you got George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. How come we don't study him today? And we should, by the way. Uh, in addition to being one of the three most notable founders, he's there for a reason. I mean, after all, he is called the father of American medicine. He's the guy who gave us medical discoveries 200 years ago that we still use today. 3,000 medical students got their diplomas signed by him. He's the guy who did the American College of Physicians. Incredible physician that he was. On top of that, he's also called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He started five universities. Three of them still go today. He's also the first professor of chemistry, did our first chemistry textbook, our first psychology textbook, our first psychiatry textbook. He is an exceptional educator. He's also a huge civil rights guy. He started the first abolition society in America. He ran the national abolition movement. He's a founder of the first, he's one of the three founders of the first black denomination in America, the AME denomination. He's the guy who trained black physicians. Nobody else was doing back then. I mean, he is such a huge civil rights guy. He's worth talking about. He's also the guy who introduced faith based prison reform back in his day. Not only did he sign the Declaration, he ratified the Constitution. He served in three different presidential administrations. He's the director of the U.S. Mint for three different presidents. The guy's into everything. How come we don't study him? It could be because he's also the founding father who started the Sunday school movement in America. If you've ever been to Sunday school and enjoyed yourself, you can thank a sign of the Declaration for that. In addition, Dr. Rush is the guy who penned this work right here. This is the Constitution for America's very first Bible society. He started a Bible society. Why did he start a Bible society? He tells us. He says, if we can get Americans to read the Bible, he said, two things will happen. Number one, they'll become Christians. Find out how to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He says, number two, if we can get Americans to read the Bible and then obey what they read, he said, we will solve all of our social problems. We won't have crime. We won't have slavery. He went through all the things we wouldn't have if we'd live by the Bible. So... He wants the Bible in the hands of every American. And looking to do that, he came up with a new way to print books. It was called stereotyped printing. This is the result. This is the first mass-produced of the first stereotyped Bible ever done in the United States. You see, that meant this was a Bible you could buy really cheap, and you could get a lot of Bibles and pass them out to everybody around you and get them into the Word of God so they can see. The first mass-produced Bible came from Sider, the Declaration of Independence. Now, because this guy was such a remarkable figure in politics so long, he's got a ton of writings. I've got volumes and volumes of his writings. And when you read the writings of Dr. Benjamin Rush, you find statements like this. He says, My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested in the world by the death of His Son upon the cross. Nothing but His blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. 
Again, that's pretty evangelical. Yeah, but that's exactly the way he was, but he's not a guy we study anymore. Same thing with Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman is the only founding father to sign all four founding documents. This guy signed the Articles of Association, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the U.S. Constitution. In addition to that, he's elected the first Congress. He's a framer of the Bill of Rights. And by the way, as a signer of the Constitution, he was the third most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He's the guy responsible for the bicameral system, the House and the Senate. He's also the guy responsible for the Electoral College, a wonderful system. System that allows both the states and the people to have voices. If it wasn't for the Electoral College, you would never get a presidential candidate coming to Alabama. They would stay on the East Coast, the West Coast. The presidential candidates would never see Iowa. They'd never see North Dakota or South Dakota, or they wouldn't see Nevada. They wouldn't see Oklahoma. They'd just stay out where the population is on the coast. See, it's a great system he came up with that we all enjoy today. It gives every state a voice into choosing our president. What great stuff he did. We don't even know who the guy is. Well, he was also a judge. He was also the mayor of New Haven, Connecticut. But in addition to all that stuff, he's also a theologian. He's the guy who wrote the entire doctrinal creed for his denomination in Connecticut. So here you have a prominent founding father who's also a noted theologian. And when you read his political writings, you find things like this. He says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all, who do believe, that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel. That is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. Sounds pretty orthodox to me. It should because he's a theologian. And by the way, he was in Congress a long time. This is one of the newspapers we have that talk about Roger Sherman. This is from 1837. And it talks about Roger Sherman in Congress. Roger Sherman says the volume which he consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress to purchase the copy of the Scriptures, to peruse it daily, and to present it to one of his children on his return. Every time he went to Congress, he took a brand new Bible with him. And as he's in Congress doing Bible study, he's writing notes out in the margin what the Lord's showing him. He's annotating it as he goes through. At the end of that session of Congress, he gets back home. He gives that Bible to one of his kids. Now, the kids know that they've got a keepsake here because Dad's really famous. And, so that's, and by the way, it took him a while to get a Bible to all of his kids because he had 19 kids. So, excuse me, 15, he had 15 kids. You've got to read the Bible a lot of times to get through 15 kids. You've got to be in Congress a long time to do that. You see, these guys, he's one of many founding fathers who believe you should read the Bible from cover to cover once a year. Benjamin Rush did. John Quincy Adams did. John Jay did. Elias Boudinot did. Roger Sherman. These guys go through the Bible. See, that's why the Bible comes out so much in what they say in their speeches, because they go through it once every year. They're reading the Scriptures every year. Well, one more. I'll show you. I can show you all these other guys, but you get the idea. Let me show you Charles Carroll here. Now, Charles Carroll, he lived to be 95 years old among the founding fathers, and that doesn't seem remarkable to we all know people who have lived into the 90s, and the average lifespan's up in the 80s today, and that, that's fine. But you've got to understand, he lived to be 95. Do you know what the average lifespan was in America back here when they signed the Declaration? Average lifespan back in this time was 35 years old, which means if you happen to be a high school senior and you're here this morning, if you had lived back then, you would have already had your midlife crisis. I mean... <laughs> Once you're 18, you're sliding in the grave. It's half over for you when you're 18. Average lifespan, 35. He lives to be 95. My gosh. He outlived his kids. He outlived his grandkids. One of his family members wrote him and said, Charles, you will die someday. And when you do die, are you ready to meet God? He responded back with this answer. This is his letter that he responded back with. He's answering 
and I'll put it up here where you can see it. He signed it, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, same way he signed the declaration, except now his, his hand's a little shakier. It's 1825. He's now 89 years old. Question is, are you ready to meet God when you die? He says, of course I'm ready to meet Why am I ready to meet God? He says, because on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I've done in obedience to his precepts. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace are we saved through faith. It's not through what we do. Otherwise, we could boast about it. It's a grace. It's the grace of God. Now, Charles Carroll also turned out to be the last of the 56 alive because in 1826, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, three of them were left alive. But on that day, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died, leaving Charles Carroll the only one of the 56 left alive. At that point, New York City writes him and says, Charles, you're the final one of the 56 who gave us our nation, our birth certificate. You're the last one left alive. We have an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. We're going to send it to you. We would like for you as the final signer of that document to inscribe on it your final thoughts, and we're going to display this at City Hall in New York City. So they sent him that document. He wrote his final thoughts on it as an elderly American statesman. You know what his final thoughts were on America? Displayed, City Hall, New York City. You know what his final thoughts of this signer were? This is what he said. He says, I'm grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's conferred on my beloved country. I can't thank God enough for what he's done for America through Jesus Christ. Man, we don't hear this in our history classes, but it's all over the documents. See, what we hear today is, oh, no, the authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. Why do we put up with this? Because we don't know our own history. We don't remember who these guys were. We don't know the 56 signers anymore. We don't know the 55 guys who did the Constitution. We used to. All we get today is a couple of them that are the least religious, and that's all we'll talk about. See, we have to turn this around. The Scripture tells us in Psalms 33:12 that blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. America is not blessed because we have a cool name, four syllables and A on each end. We're blessed because we had folks who, to the best of their ability, tried to take God's principles and incorporate it into every aspect of life, into education, into business, into government, into law, into politics. They tried their best. Now, they weren't perfect and they had lots of mistakes, but more than any other nation, they tried to incorporate God's principles. Now, we're also told in Psalms 11.3 that if the foundations be destroyed, what do the righteous do? foundation is the most important part of any structure. Empire State Building, what a cool building. Yeah, but if the foundations ever start crumbling, the whole structure is in jeopardy. What a great facility you, got, you have here. But if the foundations start going, the whole thing's in jeopardy. Preserving the foundation is important. What are the foundations? Real simple. George Washington, in his final public address when he resigned after two terms as president, said, everything that makes our politics prosper, religion and morality are the indispensable supports. If you want this thing to keep working, the two things you'll keep at the base of it are religion and morality. Now, we understand that because we know that our family will not work well apart from religion and morality. Our life won't work well apart from religion and morality. This church will not work well apart from religion and morality. And I don't know why we bought into the thing that education will work well apart from religion and morality or that government will work well apart from religion. It won't. Nothing's going to work well apart from religion and morality, which is what George Washington told us, which the challenge I'll give you in closing comes from a man named Matthias Burnett. 1803, he did something that is kind of unusual for us today, but for 170 years in American history, we started state legislative sessions by having the governor, lieutenant governor, the House, the Senate, all there. We would bring a preacher in to speak to the whole state government. Whatever they were facing that year, the Word of God gave guidance to. If you need to know what to do about spending or about taxes or about immigration or about agriculture or education, Bible's filled with it. 170 years, we started state legislative sessions with the minister. He's the guy who preached to the Connecticut legislature in 1803. They had a whole state government there. They brought him in. And so after he finished talking to all the elected officials down here on the floor, he looked up to all the citizens that were sitting there who had elected all these guys to office. 
And in looking at the citizens, he finishes his address by talking to the citizens who elected these guys to office. This is what he said. He says, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. These guys sitting down here and what they do with your rights, you'll answer to God and posterity for them. Now today, there's a ton of Christians say, whoa, time out. I'm not accountable to God for my rulers. I didn't even vote last election. Exactly. You'll really be accountable for your rulers. You see, those are the guys who will have a lot to answer for. Statistics right, statistics right now in America, 45% of Christians are not even registered to vote. And of the ones who are registered, only half vote. We're not being salt and light. Jesus said, I don't want to be salt and light. I don't care what you said, Jesus. I'm staying out of that civil arena. Say, we bought into... Say, We'll account to God. But notice what he is. He said we'll account to God and posterity. Now, posterity means unborn generations yet to come. That's in the future. When you start talking in the future for Christians, now we're getting into eschatology. I'm an ordained minister. I love eschatology. And you know, like I know, there's nothing that divides Christian denominations more than your view of the end times. You can be pre-trib, mid-trib, pan-trib, a-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, pan-millennial. All these verses, you know what? I get letters from people all the time say, Barton, we appreciate what you're trying to do for the country, but you do realize we're in the last days there's nothing you can do about it. It's a waste of your time. Maybe, and I don't care what eschatological view you hold, we all have to deal with what Jesus told us in Luke 19:13 when he said, you occupy till I come. Now, see, that's not an option. I hope Jesus Christ comes back today and messes up every plan I've got. But just in case he doesn't, I'm supposed to occupy until he comes, which is why he said to God and posterity, you'll account for your rights and your rulers. He said, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. We will stand before God someday and he's going to say, I gave you your country and I gave you your vote. What would you do with that? I decided not to do anything. Unacceptable. We've been given a stewardship. He said, you guys take care of this till I get back. You occupy till I come. That's why we have to get Jesus Christ back in the center of our thinking, not only in our life, but our family, our business, our government, education, law. It doesn't matter what it is. Christ has got to be the center again. And by the way, he's got to be the center of your life. Your life's not going to work any better than the nation's working right now. When you have Christ in the center of things, it makes a real difference. So we have to learn to think biblically again, and that's why we want to go back and remember the foundations of the nation and how this thing got started and why we've been such a blessed people. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share. Was that good or not, huh? (laughs) I can tell you the truth. I didn't know all these things. And you might have known all these. You, you probably could name all 56. I don't know. But I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, and I want to end the message today uh, that you heard by telling you why I had it played. Okay. Uh, I was praying about what God wanted me to do. I knew I, I, knew I wanted to do a standalone, but I'm not, I wasn't sure. A standalone message is not a series. I'll start a series next Sunday, which is on Malachi. Uh, but I, I, I said, God, I don't want to start this other series, but if you want me to, I will. And I started praying, and I said, okay, God, I don't know what to do uh, because I sense you want me to do a standalone, just one message that stands by itself. And I was looking through uh, some of the messages, titles that was done in the past, and I came across this one, and I think this message was done in 
1912, um, uh, not, uh, I mean 2012, and I said, yeah, 2012, and I said, well, I said, and, and, and I had a lot of them I wrote down as, as uh, to pray about. And then when I, when, when that, when that just in God, oh, you know, one nation under God, it just hit me. I said, let me listen to this. I was rebuked by God because I was one of the ones that was not going to vote. This has been my first um time not voting. I voted in the past elections and uh, recently since I've been a Christian uh, because I said, well, God, there's nobody to vote for. I mean, you know, they, they just, they don't godly, you know, I'm not going to vote for anybody. Uh, and I was, after listening, I said, oh my God, this is not good at all. Here I am uh, not going to vote. And then I get this rebuke and I believe it's from God. And it might be some others in here that's not going to vote. You might know somebody's not going to vote. I'm responsible for my children because my children usually do what I, what, what I do. And uh, I don't want to be one that's going to lead my children to not participate in making sure that this country stays the way the founding fathers meant for the state. And so... I said, well, God, who do you want me to vote for? Well, what are the issues? What are the platforms? You have the Democratic platform. You have the Republican platform. And I think they, uh, you have a uh, libertarian platform. And so I've listened to all of the debates, and I've listened to all of that. And no matter who you vote for, they got to go by that platform pretty much that they stand for. And I said, well, God, which one, which one has more godly principles than others? Because uh, all of them have some godly principles, uh, and none of them have all God's principles. So I said, well, God, what do you want me to do? Which one will, 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 will cause one nation under God to be eliminated quicker? Which one? This is, I'm asking, I'm, you know, I'm being asked this question, which one? Well, okay. I look at the issues and I say, ooh, ooh, if I vote in this party, they're going to eliminate stuff. And they might even tell me that I can't preach the Bible as the Bible is written because it might be hate speech. Oh. They might tell me that I have to marry anybody who wants to get married. Two females, two males, or otherwise you can't even uh, have a uh, tax exemption for your congregation. Oh, which one is that? Which one will cause this country to be... Um, Judge like Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, okay, okay. Now, I'm telling you that you pray because we have 10 days. You pray, you find out what God convicts you of because that's what I'm telling you the truth now. I'm telling you like it is. Uh, how, how I was. 
I'm going to vote. And I'm going to make sure uh, if I, well, I'm going to try to encourage my children to vote. I'm going to try to do that. They're grown. So they, you know, uh, but I think they'll do what dad says because I'm their pastor. So, <laughs> uh, but I never, I never, you know, I never tell the congregation anything except uh, I never say, I told her what I was going to do. She said, I thought you said you, you're not, you don't get in politics. I said, well, I'll, I'm not going to get into who's this and who's that and all this kind of stuff like that. But I need to let our congregation know because this is my responsibility. If I have to, if I have to uh, answer for your souls before God, I need to have taught you what to do. And I'm telling you what to do. You pray, you ask God, you see which ones line up more closer with the Bible and what God wants, and then you then vote that way. Don't vote how your family votes. Don't vote how, you know, your, you know, your friends vote. You vote the way God tells you to vote. That's what I want you to do. Let's stand. I also want you to, uh, if you possibly can, come to prayer on Thursday night. We have corporate prayer on Thursday night. It's the last Thursday before the election that we have prayer, uh, corporate prayer. Uh, we have it every Thursday, but it's the, it's the last one before our election. And, and I, I want to just pray for God to have his way. You know, that's what, I, what Minerva and I have been praying when we pray in the morning, five days. We just pray to God. Have your way in the election. Have your way. Because it's God's nation, isn't it? One nation under God. So that's what I want. Thank you for listening to this message from Pastor Taylor and Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at cornerstonelynchburg.com. Contact us by email, cornerstonecom at comcast.net. Or call us at 434-847-4796. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.